Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. Hi, everyone. We're back for another sporting edition of The Other Hand. Um, It behoves us to do one quite quickly after the last one because of the historic day that the Irish rugby team had yesterday at the time of recording this grand slams has is often said the first cliche of many that i'll use today is that grand slams don't come along very often ireland has had a few three in the last few years but this is the first one at home first one won in dublin and if any if nothing else i just for posterity just wanted to record a few words with irish times journalist nathan johns about yesterday and to talk about some questions that i've got around some of the incidents of yesterday's game, how we arrived at those. I want to talk a little bit about what it might mean, if anything, for the World Cup, for both teams, actually. What we've learnt about all of the teams from the Six Nations generally, again, if anything. And I'm going to start by congratulating Nathan for the call he made on the last podcast that we did a few days ago in the run-up to this game, when he said that the England personnel changes and probable change of tactics would lead to an early attacking mindset. Front foot rugby was, I think, the phrase that he used. And we saw that yesterday, particularly at the breakdown. And I'd be interested in his thoughts on that. But he also predicted the point spread with un erring accuracy. So the next time I place a sports bet, well, actually, the first time I place a sports bet, I'm going to consult Nathan for his spread forecast. Give us your give us some opening remarks about what you thought about yesterday and, and how you felt about another Grand Slam, the fourth, I think, in history. What spread did I give? Was it 10 to 15? Yes. Okay. 
Yeah, okay, I'll take that then. Uh, first of all, I love the way I love the way you classify three in the last few years. That first of three being two thousand and nine, which is what nearly fifteen years ago now. I love that. Maybe maybe that's a discrepancy for me. Fifteen years is a long time. Maybe not so much for you. It's a large proportion of your lifetime. It's not such a big proportion of mine. Yeah, I think that was that was the, that was what struck me there. I think. Well, I, rem- um, I remember that first one. It was in Cardiff, wasn't it? Yeah, no, I remember it very well. I mean, I'm not that young that I don't remember it at, at all. I just, yeah, 15 years is a hell of a long time, I would have thought. Maybe, <laughs> perspective is everything, as always, with these things. Um, yeah, look, <clears throat> like you said, the game went uh, largely how a lot of people thought it would. Uh, my thoughts were by no means unique or particularly uh, groundbreaking. Uh, I think a lot of people realised that England could not play as badly as they did the week previous in France and and they came out swinging and Ireland absorbed that and then blunted it and England looked completely devoid of ideas, ball in hand for the rest of the game. Part of that was due to being down to 14 men and their tactics completely changed and they kicked a lot more when they were down to 14, understandably. Um, and Ireland adapted and, and played very well and scored, you know, four, four very well taken tries, particularly the first one for Dan Sheehan. And we're deservedly deserved winners. The only frustration was that the England got that last late score to make it remotely close from an Irish point of view, because you know that would have been a real statement to to hold England to what was it three penalties? I think at that stage, maybe it was only two. I can't quite remember. Um, but if they held them scoreless, but at the end of the day, that doesn't matter. Those lads are going to celebrate for for forty eight hours, go back to their provinces. Most of them will get the weekend off, and then the week after that, they're into Champions Cup uh, last sixteen action. So the churn, the grind of never ending. Attention focus uh, doesn't stop, but at least they do get a few days and maybe a week to celebrate. Can I be controversial? Yeah, go on. Was it the worst 40 minutes, first 40 minutes of rugby for Ireland in this Six Nations? No, no. There were lots of handling errors. Lots of passes went to ground. Uh, Hugo Keenan did a dreadful kick to touch. Uh, There was lots of fumbling. and There were lots of errors, weren't there? Now, were they nervous errors? born of the occasion or were they because England were hassling them so much and were very aggressive uh, playing on both sides of the law it has to be said just look at the penalty count for evidence of that Um, but it was an uncharacteristically nervy display to use a second cliche yes but I think it's all relative I think England coming at you with a really fast line speed and really challenging you for 40 minutes, or it wasn't even 40 minutes, it was 25 minutes that, that they sustained that, um, is a lot harder than, than, you know, they do that better than most teams. And them, France and South Africa, probably are the only three teams capable of doing that. And, and they could only do it for 25 minutes because it's, it's exhausting. Whereas, you know, Italy, for example, don't do that. But Ireland arguably played slightly worse overall because defensively they were pretty pretty average against Italy in the first half, in in the first in that game as well. So I, I think that you know they have played worse than they played in in the Six Nations than the first half against England. Um, I think England deserve a lot of credit. Like I said, they they kind of went back to basics and just said we're going to try and disrupt, and they did disrupt for a long time defensively. Um, but equally, you know, England had had one line break all game, um, bar an opening attack where Tuilagi got one big carry and got the momentum in the first few minutes they looked completely devoid of ideas attacking and part of that was because they were and part of that was because Ireland defended very well so it was yeah maybe it was a nervy performance like the players are obviously always going to be nervous but no more so than usual and like I said they, they in the last time we had a chat they have the mental capacity to to get rid of that pretty quickly and, and get back on on, on song 
Okay, the the big incident, apart from a brilliant try, as you said, I think Dan Sheehan was the first try, wasn't it? Yeah. And I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, but the obvious thing to talk about, our third cliche of the day is, was it a red? And I want to read out three comments to you, um, all from Englishmen, about the red. Uh, from Genge, Ellis Genge, I think that's... that's yeah. Uh, ex-captain, is that right? You- it's funny because I think he, I can't remember if he was, he was captain when Farrell didn't play. Mm, that's um, right. Whether or not he was captain, I actually can't remember on the team sheets, but Far- Owen Farrell did all the post-match presser yes. stuff. So, Yes, that's right. So I think Farrell took over from Genge formally as captain, but he was when uh, Farrell, as you say, wasn't in the team. Genge was captain last time out. His quote was, it's a contact sport. What do you expect? Stewart himself, the guy that was sent off, was said, I was just bracing for a collision. And Woodward, ex-England coach, said in the studio something that was repeated, I think, across many different media outlets. It was just a rugby incident. Now, I'm going to start my comments with talking about that. If you're going to say something, you've got to say something, use words that have content. You've got to use words that have meaning. Saying it was just a rugby incident means absolutely nothing. Everything is a rugby incident. Uh, you know, from a tackle to a fumble to a missed pass to a forward pass to a good pass, everything is just a rugby incident. Every penalty is a rugby incident. So if you mean it was not a red, you should say it's not a red. Don't try and disguise what it is that you're saying with, with just mumbo-jumbo. But more, more to the point, what all three guys are saying is that it wasn't a red. And it, my perspective on it is, is that if you don't make something like that a red card, uh, the sport is going to go down the tubes because uh, the reasons why they're trying to make incidents like that a red card is because of the head injury problem. Uh, there is the simple fact that they're being sued by dozens, if not hundreds of players around the world, various rugby unions for long-term brain injuries. And uh, I think the ref was very clear in his words to the player about why he was being sent off. He couldn't have been clearer, actually. There was no mitigation. And the, the phrase, in the current climate, I've got to send you off. Um, what did you think, Nathan? Well, there's a lot to unpack there. The first one is, um, and and a lot of people are aware of this it's not it's not an un, it's not a, a controversial viewpoint to hold this within rugby circles but discount everything everything sir clive woodward says like to give him his full title with just the, how that man is paid to still be on television is a travesty he's a textbook case in point of somebody who was very successful in this in a sport a long time ago and has just not kept up to date with how the sport has changed and can't fathom that it's a very different sport to the one that he was involved in when he won a world cup in 2003 um, he is regularly ridiculed by actual rugby people online, not publicly necessarily, because people need to be careful with, you know, relationships and things like that. Um, he's 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 a terrible pundit. He's one of the worst pundits you can find. But he's a big name, so it's, he's a classic case in point of TV TV companies. You know, to kind of lift the lid a little bit on the way the world works. Uh, TV companies, newspapers as well, but TV companies. of the time do not care about the content or ability or analysis of the people they employ. It's more often the name and they probably do enjoy the fact that he stirs up such negative reaction because it means people will, will engage with it. Uh, So that's the first thing. So I I don't really want to engage too much with what he said, but what he said is was said widely across the board. I agree with you. If rugby is a contact sport, the, the default position of that is there's nothing you can do to mitigate against collisions like that. Like you said, the sport is screwed because a people will look at that and go, I don't want anything to do with that. And B, legally, you know, if you're not making an attempt, like you said, if you're not making an attempt to protect players together, 
nearly decapitated, you're in trouble. The thing I have around that, though, is the narrative that this creates. That clearly, there is still so many people within this within the sport. Again, it's a rugby is a contact sport. Referee Piper apologizing almost for giving the red card, saying in the current climate, like you said, I have to send you off. That's just feeding the the game's gone soft brigade it's feeding the oh look i don't really like it but i have to do this because you know i'm told i have to do this like that's not the point here the point here is a man has suffered a brain traumatic brain injury and you have people saying oh yeah it's just unfortunate it's just one of those things that happens and yeah look they probably are right there probably is an element of yeah you know what every now and then somebody is going to accidentally run into somebody and take their head off can i take issue with that can i because yeah. it reminds me and you can correct me because you know far more about this than I do of the debate over handball and penalties in soccer. And there used to be a concept a hundred years ago of accidental handball. And there was always this, you know, amazing debate in the studio, in the match of the day studio, when they used to have match of the day before Gary Lineker and all those. He's back now. Yeah. He's on last night, wasn't he? I'm just being facetious. Um, In which you say, oh, that was definitely an accident. And you say, no, it wasn't. Now, obviously, this is far less serious than brain injuries, but it's the same debate about whether something was accidental or not. And the football authorities eventually came up with saying, okay, uh, they tried for a while to say, well, did the handball result in any form of control of the ball's direction and try to move it away from the judgment about whether it was being accidental as to essentially whether any advantage was gained from the Mm -hmm. control or otherwise then that didn't work and now they just basically say if you handle the ball in the area it's a penalty we're not not true we're not not true either we're not going to ask whether it's accidental or not it's whether they do they do the the rule is now if you jump we're completely going down a different tangent a different sport here but if you're a defender and you jump with your hands behind your back and the ball hits you on the arm you're not going to give away a penalty whereas if you jump and your right arm is you know two yards above your head and hits you in the hand you're not making an attempt to get your hand out of the way. So they do, but I, I, I can kind of see what, what point you're you making. You can see where I'm going here. And I think that the, because the, the, you, you mentioned the, 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 the word accident, an accidental collision. And I think that, irrelevant. that I think that's utterly irrelevant. It's a red herring, yeah. It is, it is a red herring. And that if there is head-to-head contact and no effort at all, if you injure somebody else by virtue of your position on the rugby field, you should be sanctioned. And if you injure somebody else uh, seriously because of something you've done on the rugby field, you have to be sent off. And well, that's where I think we're going with this. To build on that, first of all, just, just to be absolutely clear, I think it was a slip of the tongue, but it wasn't head-to-head. It was, you know, up elbow slash slash lower bicep to head. Um, intent is irrelevant, yes, but, but the thing is people are complaining about the fact that intent should be... Like, there's a lot of people saying the laws, as the laws are written, most people who disagree with this card are saying, yes, according to the laws, it's a card, but as the laws are currently written, game's gone soft. The game is, is screwed if those accidental collisions are red cards. But the key thing in all of this is, Stuart, I didn't, I didn't see this, so I'm glad you brought it up. Stuart himself, as you said earlier, said he was bracing for a collision because what happened was he, the ball went away from Keenan because he was red because Keenan gets the ball, obviously he's entitled to tackle him. And... But he realizes that he's still running towards him quite a lot. But he realizes he can't tackle him because he doesn't have the ball. But the collision is going to happen anyway. So he braces, but he turns. And the part of it, he turns his body so that his hip, elbow, and shoulder are all what's in line. Because that's what you do. It's a natural instinct. You need to protect yourself. You're going to put the stronger parts of your body and therefore the ones that are more likely to hurt other people first. It's, it's an instinctive reaction. Again, not malicious. But he said he's bracing for impact. That was an impact that didn't need to happen. I said this on Twitter and I got pilloried saying he had absolutely no time to do anything else. But if you've got time to turn your body and like he says, brace for an impact and protect himself, 
then if you then in that impact make contact with someone's head, you have to deal with the consequences of that. It doesn't matter that you didn't mean to do it. Um, and people saying, what else are you asking him to do? Well, if he's saying, there's two points that are to dominate the the backlash against the card. It's what else were he supposed to do? And, oh, he was trying to pull out of a tackle. He, first of all, he said himself, he's not trying to pull out of a, he's trying to pull out of a tackle, but he's not trying to pull out of a collision. The collision was going to happen. And he said that. Stack that. And thirdly, this is kind of what Piper hinted at on the, on the game. But if he's had time to turn his body, has he had time to get out of the way altogether? A lot of people are saying he didn't. He's 100 kilos. He's six foot five. He's running full speed. It's very hard to do that. But if you've had time to do one action and that action is not an evasive action, as he himself has admitted, and then you make contact with someone's head. Yeah, if the game is decided that the laws are going to protect the guy who gets knocked out of the game like that even if there's no malicious intents, I'm perf- I'm perfectly okay with the laws being like that. And it's not a game's gone soft issue. And it's not a, it's they're siding with the player who's been injured rather than the one who's accidentally, again, done something horrific. And in logic, the authorities are doing the right thing because if you are going to moan about intent and or whether it was an accident, you can never tell these things. It's You can never infer intent or infer whether it's an accident or not, at least most of the time, because most sets of circumstances where these sorts of things happen, it could have been either. He might have intended it, he might not. We'll never know because we can't actually dissect his brain and have a look at what was going on in it before before he um, made that decision, instinctive or otherwise, to do what he did. So if you make an instinctive decision to clatter somebody in the head rather than a deliberate decision how are we supposed to be able to tell the difference and anyway if it was an instinctive clatter it's still wrong so i i, I do think that the authorities are moving in the right direction for the sake of individuals well, what, for doesn't the sake help of sport. Is, is, what doesn't help is the referee almost saying i'm sorry i had to do this yeah that was ridiculous. That, 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 that's ridiculous that that is and, and piper was there was a lot going on yesterday between me he's I, i've always found him a puzzling referee to to watch um but that's a different conversation for a different day but yeah if you're referee if you're you're the safeguarder of the laws on a daily basis on a well on a weekly basis to an audience of millions is saying sorry about this i have to do it there's no way you're going to change attitudes and another point about always making statements of uh, certainty about whether somebody was intentional somebody was accidental or whatever is then the next cliched question which everybody has an answer to did the red make a difference to the game? And most of the pundits that I've read this morning say uh, English writers, for example, in the Sunday Times, have uniformly said, no, it didn't. England would still have lost and um, Ireland were, were dominant up until that point anyway, not on the scoreboard, but in terms of all the stats, there were the, the possession stats, the tackle count, um, the metres made. Um, and I'll come back to that in a minute, that the dominance of Ireland via the stats suggested that Ireland were going to win anyway. But again, uh, how could you possibly know what would otherwise have happened if England had had 15 men on? You know, you just you just don't know. So you have to be very careful about making these these definitive statements. But um, do you think it made a huge difference to the result of the game or not? It made a difference to how the game was played. Uh, England kicked a lot more. They realised that if they try and play a little bit. I mean, they, they kick a lot anyway, England. I mean, as do as do all teams these days. It's it's not so much a... I'm not someone who thinks kicking is boring and bad for the game. Ireland and France kick a hell of a lot and they play arguably the best the best rugby on show in, in this Six Nations. But um, they changed in terms of, you know, they, they, they would... England did at least try and run a little bit from halfway onwards in the first half. Like I said, there was that initial attack where Tulagi runs over Aki and Van der Freer and England are on the front foot and that leads with them going in up 3-0. 
that just completely stopped um, really in the second half. They'd get too laggy running for one phase and then, you know, he'd be marshaled and they'd kick uh, because they realised, right, if we play in our own half and go and, and then something goes wrong, Ireland get good territory, we're playing with 14 men here. So let's try and make Ireland play out from a lot deeper. Um, and for a while it worked. I mean, right, 10, 15 minutes, Ireland were frustrated. Um, there was a handful of line breaks from deep. Hansen was particularly good at, at running the ball back, but there's a lot of kick tennis because Ireland realised, right, well, if we just stay patient and wait for a mistake, eventually we'll get a platform in their half and we'll score. And that's ultimately what happened in the last 20 or so minutes. So it made a difference to how the game was played. But I agree in terms of what was going on. For all England's dominance, let's call it, in the first 20 minutes, they made one line break all game. Ireland made eight. And they had way more, like you said, there was lots of handling errors in that first half, but they were still breaking the line with with relative ease. So, so no, um, there's a, and there's a lot more stats. Um, you know, Ireland, oh, most teams, the possession doesn't necessarily mean dominance, but for Ireland it does because they're, they're a possession-based team. So if they've got the ball, they're, they're going to dominate. So, yeah, I, I completely um, agree with, with all of the above. And then the other thing was there's a fantastic stat uh, from a statistician called Russ Petty I'll read it out. So tries conceded in 2023, Six Nations, Italy 22, Wales 19, England 18, France 14, Scotland 12. Uh, tries conceded by Ireland in 2022 and 2023 combined, 10. Wow. But Ireland have conceded less, fewer, fewer tries. I think that's right. Fewer tries in the last two Six Nations than all sides combined, all sides individually in one Six Nations. Um, so even if England did hold on to the ball and not kick it, you would back Ireland's defence to preserve the lead that they had. Has let even though what it was one one point to halftime, four points. It was it was a, it was a very narrow halftime margin. There's no doubt about that. But the stats for carries interested me the most because Ireland carried the ball 471 meters in that game. England 282. Yeah, like that, that, that's indicative of what we're just saying. England yeah, exactly. England were happy to carry a fair bit in the when they had. 15 in the first half and really try and stress Ireland's defence, which they did to an extent, not to the point of getting on the scoreboard, but they managed to get into the 22 a few times. Ireland's defence showed up there. But then after that, like I said, um, England came up with fast line speed, but Ireland realised, right, that might, that might hit us back once or twice. But once one pass beats the line speed, there's space on the outside or there's space, you know, on that with an inside ball or something. And like I said, there was eight line breaks to one. So... It, it doesn't surprise me that Ireland had, what, what, like you said, nearly double the amount of metres made. Did, changing the subject completely, did Tyg Furlong struggle? Um, it was the first time I've seen him give away a few scrum penalties in a long time. Uh, I thought I thought he played as well as he does carrying-wise. I thought he was pretty good. He butchered, a, butchered a try-scoring chance to use my fourth. Yeah, he, he should have passed. Yeah, he, yeah, he, sh- he should have passed. I think I, I think I, did they, I think they might have got a penalty anyway in that situation. I can't remember exactly. I could be wrong. Don't quote me on that. But yeah, there was a, a line break and he was on the end of it. And again, that's something that he does especially well. Not a lot of props would be in that situation um, and trusted to give the take the pass and give the scoring pass, but he didn't give the scoring pass. And Ellis Gange got the better of him at a few at a few scrums. So, not his best day by any stretch of the imagination. But you know, if you want, if you're in the business of looking for excuses, you could say it's his second game back. He he'll play a lot of rugby between now and the World Cup, and as long as he stays fit, he, he'll be fine. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a It's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I just think it was, you know, wasn't a bad day at the office, to use my fifth cliche. Um, but uh, a pretty average one for Ty. But the try, the props handled the ball three times in the run-up uh, to an attacking line-out. And then from that line-out, Ryan catches it, passes it to Van der Fleer, I think is the way it went. Van der Fleer... We're talking about the first one. Yeah, the first try. Baird at the line-out. Baird caught the ball, did he? The line-out, yeah. Ryan. All right. No, Ryan, Ryan, no, they both wear the black scrum cap, so it's confusing. Oh, okay. All right. As does Norris. But then uh, lots of defenders were, were moved basically by line, by runs being made, movements being made by the Irish backs, took the English defence all one way, opened up the space for Sheehan to just run through. Cause, and it was van der Fleer then passed to his left, wasn't it? And, mm-hmm. he, and he almost was pushed over the line by an England defender. Yeah, quite- Tulagi absolutely monstered him, but he sent him towards the try line. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah, like you said, look, and this is this is where we, we spoke about the first time I was on, the, the, the value of visual medium versus uh, written or audio for, for analysis like this. So I won't, I won't ramble on too long. But yeah, essentially, Gibson Park and Lowe run off the mall blindside. And because and, and, and Sheehan is lurking on the blindside, there's three Irish attackers on the blindside. So three English defenders sit there out wide, Doris is coming on a hard angle inside, so 10 and 12 are focused on him, so they're not going to come in. Um, so once you have three guys distracted on one side and then the other guys distracted on the other, so long as once Van der Fleer peels off and the defence follows him, as it did, you only need half a gap. Because bear in mind where this is, it's at a line-out, so you're dealing with forwards. And Sheehan is probably the quickest forward in world rugby. So it's not like he's running against a, bl- a winger here. So once you only need to open up half a gap for him and make sure that the cover on either side doesn't have time to get to him. And he's in because it was what 20, 15 meters out. So it was it was very clever. Um, they actually they ran the same play about five or six minutes earlier, close closer up the pitch. Except they didn't give the ball to Sheehan. They gave it to Doris, who made a decent carry on in running at the ten and twelve. So again, just using the same play but with a different look. So the fact that Doris is out wide means he's going to attract attention. Uh, so it's just it's just as always with this with these things. It's very very well drawn up and, and very clever. And eventually, during the second half, the extra man made a contribution and all of that possession, all of those meters being carried, Ireland eventually made fewer mistakes and ran the bonus point tries in. Um, and that was really the story of the second half. They did play much better in the second than the first though, didn't they? Well, England's line speed stressed them a lot less. A, because they only had 14 and, you, and, and B, because it was un, un, unsustainably quick in the opening and the opening stages and England needed to make hay while they were disrupting the attack and, and, and they didn't because they didn't have the attacking ability themselves to, to fire those shots. Um, they made better decisions, Ireland. Gibson Park played really well. They kept going down the blind side for quite a few of those tries. 
um, and his decision-making and which passes to give. There was a brilliant pass he threw in front of a forward to give to Hansen, and that just led to a mini, like little, just small moments like that. And those happened every phase or every second phase. And when those are happening without that much regularity, you're just constantly sitting down defences and you're going you're gonna to wear them out. The way a game like this, particularly a historic game like this, is reported is uh, always interesting to me. And today, a lot of people would have bought newspapers, physical copy, to um, mark the occasion, if nothing else, to spend their Sunday morning, particularly if you're Irish, over a cup of coffee and a croissant, reading uh, all of this kind of stuff. But of course, the world is changing very rapidly. And there are different ways that you can consume your, your rugby reports. And indeed, the old fashioned newspaper way is changing rapidly. And I know you've got lots of thoughts on this. And I won't, I won't mention the journalist in question, name him, because um, we both are friends of his, actually. Uh, but I read very early on this morning the online report of the game from a journalist in the Sunday Times. And I guess it, it's a simple story. He must have filed it as soon as the game was over. Because uh, when you then go in to read it, I, re- I re- reread it because in preparation for this podcast, because this guy's reporting is very, very and analysis is very, very good, very, very strong. And it was quite a different um, report online. Um, obviously, somebody had gone in and edited out all the errors. And one quite amazing blooper in the first piece was a reference to a player called Tyg Farrell. Um, which was interesting that that had gone by the time the second piece arrived, but it, it read quite differently actually the two pieces by the same journalist because so, clearly somebody had um, either the journalist himself or a sub editor had gone in and edited it. But it sort of opens up the discussion for me: is that how do you think in the future we are going to be consuming our media, our sports media, in terms of in terms of this? Because we've got this, as I say, this almost throwback to the old days of newspapers but the online stuff you call you refer to as visual media what we're doing now podcasting where's it going to go nathan what do you think well first of all i mean that game finished at seven o'clock last night uh the sunday papers still have a really big importance in our world print wise and you know he would have been dealing with the print deadline of nine half nine so he would have had to do that done that and then gone on and probably written another two or three pieces based on what everyone was saying after the game uh, all in the space of two hours so that, that's always a factor as well. Um, the, yeah, I think Sunday papers uh, for occasions like this, any, well, any weekend papers, Saturday papers, if the game is on a Friday, will always have a place because, like you said, people will always want to bask in successes and pick out the paper and, you know, <laughs> podcasting, so it's great radio, but go like that, you know, the, the pull out the broadsheet narrative, you know, lick the finger, pull open the broadsheet and, and sit there with a couple. So that's always going to have a place. Uh, so, so I think weekend papers will never die. Print circulation during the week will eventually die. I think uh, physical papers will become weekly or maybe bi-weekly, um, depending on the event. Uh, I was chatting to some journalists when I was in Cheltenham this week, and they were saying their print sales during Cheltenham week go up by 30,000 30, in circulation. And then they'll drop down next week, but they'll sell an extra 30,000 papers every day uh, this week because it's Cheltenham. So things like that will always be, be present because people just love feeling a part of it and people feel part of it by picking up a paper and sticking their head in it. Um, but then away from that online media with written word, podcasting is very different because, you know, podcasting, if you have 10,000 people listening to you, you can make decent ad money. Um, but with written word, it's going to go, how you make your money is either, uh, through the number of people who click onto your article and therefore how many people see the ads on your website or, um, so that's, you know, I don't want to use the word clickbait, but you know what I'm getting at there. 
or the other model is you produce work that is not as frequent as newspapers because if you bear with newspapers you have page pages to fill so you have what's called filler copy which is where nobody really invests that much time or effort into it but it fills a slot in the paper and therefore everyone's happy and that going online doesn't do anything for you because nobody's going to click into it and if it hasn't been given proper time and investment it's not going to be good enough that people will pay for it and that's the other model is that you produce slightly less amount of work but that's considered crucially exclusive you know it's your own work not just going to a press conference and the, the 20 other people are at and therefore because you put time and effort into it people are recognize that and are willing to pay for it and you won't get as many people clicking onto it because it's because it's not you know the the model of number of clicks but it's um people will invest pay 20 quid a month to, to read it because they recognize it's good and they enjoy reading it and that's the model and a lot of industry uh, newspapers are kind of caught in the caught in both camps at the minute and then they're trying to forge an identity uh, are you you know and it's not it's not it's not quite a tabloid versus broadsheet thing because a lot of broadsheets still engage in the the numbers model rather than the subscription model um but yeah i think i think you do need to pick one or the other because um at the end of the day well as a news organization you will there will always be a place for numbers because something big happens loads of people are going to want to read about it quickly but you i personally would be much more a proponent of it's the subscription subscription model as a journalist if you want you need to do good work that'll make people pay for it because the other side of this is and the risk of rambling we're only now 20 years let's say after the online explosion everybody 20 years ago realized oh shit we can just read everything online for free we don't have to go buy a newspaper isn't this great and people weren't willing to pay for stuff whereas i think now it's kind of come the other way around people have gone yeah okay well we did pay two three euro every day for a paper so if we pay a tenner a month we are actually still paying less and at the end of the day we probably should still be paying for stuff because that's just how the world works for nothing, if, nothing is free if i can share with you the experiences i've had with this podcast which we've been running for the last couple of years now uh, i've been surprised when we very tentatively and very nervously decided to open it up to paid subscriptions we have a free and paid model so um, some things go out for nothing some things go out only to our paid subscribers we don't charge very much and we for the reasons that you suggested, we were told that the subscription model wasn't going to work because A, we had gotten people used to doing it for nothing and um, B, people generally, as you just said, are used to doing it for nothing. And I was quite surprised by the number of people, A, who signed up. And this is for our written work as well as our podcasting, by the way. So um, it, it's uh, it's about access to our written work and whether or not you want to receive the podcast ad-free, that, that blended hybrid model. I was surprised by, A, the number of people who did sign up. It was more than people told me that it was going to. And, B, the number of emails I got from people who were doing it unsolicited saying, the reason why I'm signing up for five quid a month, five dollars a month actually, is because the time has come to start paying for things that you want to read and, dare I say, quality journalism. They, that was their words, not mine. I'm not trying to be self-aggrandizing, blow smoke up my own ass or anything like that. But people did say nice things like that. So I think the world, as you say, is shifting away from that, well, everything's free and that's the way it's got to stay model, which, of course, is disastrous for business. But the second thing I'd say is it reminds me of a lot of businesses that have been disrupted by technology, disrupted by the advent of the Internet, is it created in management consultancy speak. Um, I'm not one of those, by the way, a barbell, which is that you're either going to have the very, very big 
international conglomerates. And it doesn't matter what business you're in, whether it's newspapers or banking or any business in between. You're going to have the big international beer moths and the boutiques. And if you're caught in the middle, you're in the valley of death. You're going to get... 100%. And that's where newspapers are at the minute because they have a duty to report on the news of the day and give that to people unfiltered. No, no, sorry, not unfiltered. Barrier-free, so to speak, right? Um, You know, there there needs to be... That's what what public service broadcasting is. We talked about the BBC earlier. That's what they do. They give you what you need to know for free. Um, and and to an to an extent, newspapers also should be doing that. They don't are they're not legally required to do that, like the BBC and RTE are. Um, but they should. But then at the same time, if you want people to pay ten, fifteen, twenty quid a month, you need to give them stuff that's really interesting and the kind of the more long read uh, stuff that they'll read two or three times a week and go, wow, that was really interesting. I didn't. I've learned something there. Um, and yeah, and like you said, there's a lot of people caught in between, and newspapers are by nature caught in between because they have to do make money and they also have to report on the news of the day. Um, whereas public service broadcasting don't, and more boutique outlets like yourself uh, don't have to. So yeah, newspapers really need to to. I think they have to find that balance based on who they are if they're going to be national newspapers. Otherwise, they just slowly turn into boutique outlets and you know sports desks become rugby desks, and you become a rugby subscription model for, for that. That won't happen. But there is a subtlety that I think that although I said that, you, you know, that model of you're either gigantic global international beer moth or a boutique is a good rule of thumb. There are going to be exceptions to this. And I think the Financial Times is a very interesting exception to that because it does all the reporting of the financial news. But it's almost, I think, I don't know whether this is conscious or unconscious, but when you look at the the structure of the media offering with their print, their online, their uh, podcasting, their blogging, their newsletter offering. It's often uh, around particular individuals who have personal franchises, who are an expert in a particular field, who have a known reputation or have managed to build a reputation whilst at the FT. And it's almost as if these, it's a conglomerate of mini boutiques which is an interesting hybrid model of the one that I'm referring to. And, and it's it, working for them. Oh, yes, working big time because they but charge a lot of money. For thing is with them, yeah, so that's that's the other thing I'm going to say. How much do they charge for a subscription mm. every year? And it depends on how much you use. Yeah, but the full subscription is about 500 quid. Yeah, yeah. so the, the thing is here, you also have to know your audience. Mm. Uh, a financial newspaper, a business podcast, uh, a rugby subscription service, which doesn't exist, by the way. There aren't really that many boutique there are lots of smaller guys who will cover one team and charge you a five quid a month to read their Patreon or whatever it is. But in terms of like what I would call, consider the athletic for rugby, it doesn't really exist. Rugby pass, I've tried. But anyway, besides the point, those industries, I mean, let's calling a spade a spade here. You are dealing historically and most for most for the most part with people with disposable income. Mm. There are financial types who have big salaries and a lot of those people are also rugby fans. You know, there's, yeah. there's not, there's a lot of people who adore rugby that are not you know in in that societal bracket and i don't want to paint broad brushstrokes but that's the other thing you have to consider as well is what are you writing about and does your audience historically have money in their back pocket that they can give you well that's true of any business nathan you got to, you can only sell to people that can afford to buy a product i mean but know, certain products are more expensive products or, to, or high-end high value-added products absolutely so well, are they? Well, they're not. It's the it's the audience that that it's the well, I, think, audience. I, I would say the FT is high value added. I subscribe, yeah. and I, I think it's worth every penny. And but it's not high value just because of what it covers. If that makes sense, 
it's so, high value because of the way it covers it. Whereas, you know, rugby is highbrow because it's rugby and it always has been, for so mm. to speak. Whereas, is it actually more highbrow or high value than anything else in society? No. But historically, the people that play and watch it come from those backgrounds yes. that get pilloried a lot. Enough, well, not pilloried. On the, enough on the future of journalism. We've used up a lot of your time. Um, I'm just going to end here by asking you the, the, the sixth cliched question, Ireland's chances in the World Cup. Uh, I'll say what I said to someone yesterday. Um, they still have a way. We, I think we spoke about this last time. They still have a ridiculously hard draw. Um, three of the top five teams in the world are in their pool, South Africa, Scotland, Ireland, and they have to play New Zealand or France in a, in a, in a quarter final. whereas England, England's path to a semi-final goes through Wales and Australia. Um, England could beat Wales and Australia playing how they did yesterday and staying to 15 men on the pitch and keeping their line speed and disruptive, disruptive tactics going for, for longer, to be, to be completely honest. Um, and that, that could take them to a World Cup semi-final. Australia are a very good team, so maybe not. They're a lot better than people think at the minute. Um, whereas Ireland, but so based on pure probability and the way it works, Ireland probably are still very likely to lose in a, in a quarter-final if they slip up against South Africa and have to play France in a quarter-final in the Stade de France. Uh, they, but look, the one thing I would say is they could not have given themselves any better preparation in terms of building a winning culture, building a culture that is, you know, prone to adversity, but prone to getting through it better than previous regimes. Um, nothing will phase them. It's just being phased and losing are obviously not always the same thing. And so they've never won a knockout game in a World Cup, have they? No. And that might still be the case this time around. That's the thing. Andy Farrell could be the greatest Irish coach that's ever been. He could, but he could win a World Cup. We could win a, a Grand Slam and lose a World Cup quarterfinal in the same year. It's just the way it's gone. It's It's desperately unlucky for him it's unfair actually but um we've talked about that before nathan thanks very much i appreciate your time again and that was an absolutely fascinating discussion about both the game the occasion and the future of sports journalism in particular and journalism and the media in general so thanks very much indeed appreciate it speak to you next time thank you You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated.